Congregation, the scripture reading and preparation for the proclamation of God's word you can find, first of all, in the gospel according to Matthew, the seventh chapter, beginning at verse 13, and we'll read verse 13 through 27, and then we will turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and read verses 11 through 15, beginning then with Proverbs 1, or, or I'm sorry, sorry, Matthew 7, verse 13. Matthew 7, verse 13. Let's hear the word of God. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. We will now turn to Revelation 20, and we'll read verses 11 through 15. Christ in Matthew 7 clearly alluded to that day, the day of all days, the final day, when he will be the judge of all the earth, and these verses speak of that. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, 
according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy, precious, and infallible word. Beloved congregation, I read in your hearing the conclusion of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. That remarkable sermon that he preached. And I hope that you've noticed that he concludes that sermon in a most searching way. That he concludes that sermon by calling us to self-examination in various ways. He spoke to us of the narrow and the broad way. And the sobering truth that many, many are on that broad way that leads to destruction, clearly implying that there are only two options. Either we are on the narrow way that leads to everlasting life, or we are on the broad way that leads to destruction. Then he spoke to us about trees that bear fruit. Good trees that bring forth good fruit, evil trees that bring forth evil fruit. Telling us of the impossibility of both contradictions, namely that a good tree would bring forth evil fruit or that an evil tree would bring forth good fruit. And then he told us, by their fruits you shall know them. When I lived in Ontario again, I was surrounded by many fruit orchards. And gradually I learned to recognize the trees by the fruit they bore. And Christ is saying about us that ultimately the fruits of our life will indicate whether we are good trees or whether we are evil trees. And then Christ speaks to us about that day. That day, the final day, that day when he will be the judge of all men, that day when we will appear before him. And it's rather stunning, is it not, that he tells us there will be many, many in that day who think they will enter and who will hear out of his mouth. Though you prophesied in my name, Though you did many wonderful works, though you cast out devils, I've never known you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. And then finally, the parable of the wise and the foolish builders, where Christ again emphasizes that the genuineness, the genuineness of our profession will be determined how we live according to that word. He said, those who hear my word and are not doers of that word are foolish builders. And those who hear my word and are the doers of my word, they are the wise builders. And that brings us to the solemn reality that the church of Jesus Christ in her visible forms is always made up of both. That the church in its visible form 
has those that are on the narrow way, those that are on the broad way. Those who bring forth good fruit, those who bring forth evil fruit. Those who merely profess the name of Christ and those who are the doers of his will. Those who are merely hearers of the word and those who are also the doers of his word. And in the parable of the vine which we began to consider this morning, Christ addresses the reality of fruitless branches. This morning we heard that those who are truly united to Christ by a true living faith, those who are indwelled by the Spirit of Christ, they cannot but manifest that by the fruits of their life. And those who are united to Christ, as we saw this morning, with a true vital union. They, were, they are exhorted by Christ to live out of that union and to abide in Him. And now we come to verse 6. This solemn passage that we must consider also in this evening hour. So let's read again our text and the Word of God above all. Where Christ says, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So we will consider fruitless branches. First of all, they do not abide in Christ. Secondly, they will be judged by Christ. They will be cast forth and they will experience the wrath of Christ. Because the fire, we read of that fire in Revelation 20, is often used in Scripture to symbolize the wrath of God. Fruitless branches. They do not abide in Christ. They will be judged by Christ. They will experience the wrath of Christ. So I already mentioned a couple times this morning that one of the ways in which we could define the fruit that Christ is talking about in John 15 is defined for us in Galatians 5 verse 22, where Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And the very fact that Paul refers to it as the fruit singular he is saying that this is actually a package. It's all or nothing. He is saying that those who are in Christ, those who are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, will in some measure manifest these fruits. Or as I put it this morning, is that union to Christ, real union to Christ, will manifest itself in likeness to Christ. And the more we abide in Him, the more we will begin to resemble Him. But we realize that Christ here, and already did in verse 2, is addressing a reality that exists in the visible church. And it's clear from all the teaching of Christ, various other parables that you are familiar with as well, and to which I will briefly refer in a moment, it's very clear that Christ teaches us that the church in its visible form will never be pure. 
The church in its visible form will always consist of true believers and of counterfeit believers. Or to use the analogy of this chapter, there will always be fruit full branches and there will be fruitless branches. Paul writes of this in Titus 1 verse 16. Very sobering words, congregation, when he says, they profess that they know God. They profess something, but in works they deny him. What a sobering statement that is, congregation. What a statement that should compel us to examine ourselves. God forbid that it would be true of you and me that we profess the truth and that our life contradicts it. That's what Paul is talking about. And then Ezekiel 33, verse 31. Turn with me to the passage for a moment. It's a very sobering passage. Ezekiel 33, verse 31, which so describes, so describes the reality of the church even today. Ezekiel 33, verse 31. We read there, and they come unto thee. God is talking to Ezekiel here. And they come unto thee as the people cometh. And they sit before thee as my people. And they hear thy words. But they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love. But their heart goeth after their covetousness. And so here in Ezekiel, God is talking about professing Christians who talk the talk, but who do not walk the walk. It's all talk. They sit before you. They love to hear you. They sit before you as my people, but they are not doers of my word. Their mouth is filled with with love. Their mouth is filled with perhaps all the right things, all the right expressions. But their heart goeth after their covetousness. And so the sobering truth that Christ addresses here is that membership in the visible church is not saving. And how many in our day are deceived by this, are deceived by thinking that because they have made a verbal profession of faith and they are recognized by the church as such, To think that, therefore, all is well. And Christ is saying, you can be attached to me. This is so sobering. You can be attached with me without there being a real, life-giving, life-transforming union. Because he's talking about branches. Already in verse 2, we talked about branches that are in me, that are actually connected to me. So he's talking about those who outwardly, at least, have a real connection with the visible church, who are outwardly connected to the vine. But I'm certain that you have all seen trees or bushes that had living branches and dead branches. The dead branches were attached to the tree, but you knew they were dead because the difference between the living branches and the dead branches was so absolutely obvious. The living branches were 
You, you saw the leaves. You saw the evidence of life. And the other branches, though connected to the tree, were absolutely void of all evidences of life. And so the troubling fact, a troubling fact we have to address tonight, that's especially true in the West, it's especially true in our country. There are so many quote-unquote Christians who are living Christless lives. There are so many who profess the name of Christ whose life absolutely gives no evidence that that confession is genuine. Remember that Paul tells us in Romans 10 that the true believer is characterized not only by what he professes with his mouth, but what he professes with his mouth is what he believes in his heart and manifests itself. In 1 John 2 verse 4, John writes this, and as a matter of fact, in his entire first epistle, there are many similar statements. He says, he that saith, I know him. Think about that. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So there are those who claim they know him. They say, I know him. There are those who profess the name of Christ. There are those who think that that profession will save them. There are those who attend the Lord's Supper and who think that that very fact will save them. And John is saying, and God's Word is saying, you cannot claim to know Him and not be a doer of His Word. I said it this morning already. If we are truly united to the living Word of God, that's who Christ is. If we are, those that are united to the living Word will honor His written Word. Those two belong inseparably together, congregation. You cannot claim to be a follower of the living word unless your life and my life demonstrates that we take his written word seriously, all of it. And so the Christless Christians that Christ is talking about, they are the foolish builders that he's talking about. The foolish builders. And in that parable, the foolish builder had a very impressive house, outwardly Everything seemed to be in order. It's even possible that in the end, that house resembled the house of the wise builder until the storm came. The storm that exposed the foundation of that house. And then the house of the foolish builder crumbled because that house was not built and founded upon a rock. Think of the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. What is it, congregation? What is it that distinguishes the wise from the foolish virgins? What's so sobering about that parable, what's so convicting about that parable, is that the difference between them will not be manifested until the bridegroom comes. In other words, outwardly, they have everything in common. Outwardly, in other words, to our human perception, we don't even see a difference between the wise and foolish builders. So far, it can go. But what's the difference? You see, there is an invisible aspect. There is an invisible aspect to the life of the wise 
the wise virgins. And what was that, of course, what became evident is that when the bridegroom came, those wise virgins had an invisible supply of additional oil which the foolish virgins did not have. And so what is that invisible aspect that distinguishes the wise from the foolish builders? It is that the true believer, the true believer, there is an invisible aspect to his spiritual life, and that is his private walk with God. The true believer is not merely concerned about his outward walk, about his outward profession. A true believer cannot live without that secret fellowship with God. A true believer cannot live without his closet life. The true believer is someone whose spiritual life is fueled by that private devotional walk with God. Or to use what the analogy that we used this morning, the true believer is a life whose visible manifestation, the visible manifestation of his life flows out of that invisible abiding in Christ. You see that, that private devotion of the Christian, when we are all alone with God, alone with His Word, where no eye sees us except God's eye. That's invisible to, the, to our eye. It's invisible to my eye. It's invisible to your eye. But that is such an essential part of the Christian life. And so again, the visible walk, the visible manifestation of the true Christian life is fueled, fueled by that secret, private walk with God. And so clearly what Christ is saying here, that nominal Christians, Christians in name only, nominal Christians are they who do not habitually Abide in Christ. Again, he uses the present tense here. If a man does not habitually or continually or regularly abide in me. Now, I said this morning that sadly, in the life of God's children, there are those interruptions. But they are the exception. Because the father is the husbandman. He will not tolerate it. If his children do not bear fruit, and he will prune us with the knife of affliction to bring us back to Christ, to cause us again by faith to abide in him. As the husbandman who cares for the vine, who is committed to the glory of the vine, he will prune us, he will afflict us, he will chastise us to bring us back to and abiding in Christ. But here Christ is talking about those who habitually do not abide in Him. And what He is saying in this text, those who do not habitually abide in Him give evidence that they are not in Him, that there is no real life-giving relationship with Him. That's the point Jesus made in that solemn verse when he says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What is the will of the Father? What is the will of the Father? It is the Father's will that we believe his Son and that we follow his Son in evangelical obedience. That's the Father's will. And so Christ is saying, when it comes to religion, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And I'm afraid that in our very prosperous Western world, it has become so easy to say, Lord, Lord, without living a life that consists with this, without there being evidence that we also, by grace, desire to live in obedience to this Lord, that we submit to his lordship. And that's why Jesus says, there will be many. I find that so sobering and so unsettling, congregation, because that gets very close to me. It talks about those who have prophesied in his name. In the final analysis, in the day of days, it will not help me one bit that I am a preacher of the gospel. That will not guarantee my entrance in the, into the kingdom of heaven. What matters in the final analysis is whether I, by the grace of God, not only professed his name, but whether I was a doer of the will of our Father which is in heaven. And Jesus says, and he will be the judge congregation. When he said that, he knew what was coming. He knew with perfection what that day looked like. And he says, there will be many who will be utterly stunned. There will be many who will be utterly aghast. There will be many who were absolutely certain that they would enter, and they will be denied entrance. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. You might say, how is that possible? Never knew us? Isn't he all-knowing? Of course. But that's that that important Greek verb, gnosko, that describes a knowledge that is acquired by experience. It's the knowledge that a husband has of his wife and the wife of her husband. It's the knowledge that parents have of their children and children of their parents. And so when Jesus said, I never knew you, he is saying there was never a real relationship between us. There was never a vital relationship between us. There was never this abiding relationship with Christ. Oh, congregation, that's why this is such a serious matter. Because we only get to live our life once. And between that short moment that separates our birth and our death... We need to be reconciled with God. And if we're wrong in this matter, if somehow we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're going to enter, and then to be denied entrance, then to be exposed in the end as a fruitless branch, a branch that will be cast forth, a branch that ultimately will end its its existence, if you will, withered 
utterly fruitless. Utterly fruitless. And death will come. Death, which is always much nearer than we think. Last week I said to my own congregation, I said, in my ministry there have been numerous occasions where someone was alive one Sunday and in the grave the next Sunday. That's exactly what happened last week in Northwest Iowa. A two-year-old child, healthy and well, one Sunday ago. The next day he was struck by the branch of a tree, killed instantly. And that child is in the grave today, a week later. God's Word tells us, man knows not his time. That's why it is so important for us to engage in self-examination, to be wrong in this matter, congregation, to somehow think that all is well when it isn't. What a stunning, what a stunning thing it will be to realize that we were deceived after all. If you've ever read the Pilgrim's Progress, you will know that in his dream, he saw that from the very gate of heaven, there was a way that led to hell. Those who came that far and yet ultimately perished. Oh, God forbid. God forbid. Think of the parable in Luke 13, verse 7 and 9, which Christ uttered after he had just said twice to his audience, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. When he talked about the slaughter of Pilate, when he slaughtered the Galileans, when he talked about those who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them, he said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Then he follows that with the parable of the fig tree. Behold, it says these three years, symbolic of the time of grace, the three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he, that is the, the keeper of the vineyard, he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also. I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. Is there someone here tonight whom God continues to give that time of grace, space to repent, space to come to Christ, space to seek Him, space to be reconciled with God during this very short period that is our life. Our life is like a shadow that flees away. A congregation, we only get to die once. We can't do it over. And when we die, when we breathe our last breath, your and my eternal destiny is sealed forever. Therefore, we need to know on biblical grounds what our relationship is to this Christ. 
Oh, what a day it will be. It says men gather them, and actually in the, in the original it says, and they gather them. And nearly all commentators agree that this is a clear reference to the angels. Let me just quote from Matthew four passages that clearly indicate the role that the angels will play in that final day. <coughs> Matthew 13, verse 41. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works, according to the fruits. Matthew 24, verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with them, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And those angels congregation, those angels will flawlessly separate the fruitful from the fruitless branches. Flawlessly, they will separate them. Verse 41, we read it, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. Their instructions of their master, of their king, will be so precise that there will be no mistake in that day when they make that separation. And then comes the judgment, the final judgment of which we read from Matthew 20. That final, infallible, and irreversible judgment. A judgment that will be executed by this Christ by the Son of Man. And how fitting that is, because all of God's dealings with man are always in and through His Son. And so it will be the final judgment. He said it Himself in John 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. In Acts 17, verse 31, when Paul was speaking in Athens, when he was addressing this pagan audience, he ends his sermon by saying, because he, this God whom you ignorantly worship, he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Romans 2 verse 16, Paul writes, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The secrets of men. What a sobering statement that is. You know what Paul is saying? Then it will be evident that God knows who we really are. He knows your and my heart and the secrets within. He knows who we really are. And in that day, there will be no more pretense. He, as the judge of all the earth, will infallibly judge all men in that day. And what will be the criterion of judgment? Our works, our fruits. Does it mean then that we are saved by works? No, not at all. By no means. 
But what this means, those, those, those numerous references that tell us the same thing, it means that our life is the ultimate evidence of who we are. If our life does not corroborate our profession, our profession is vain. As John says, if you, you can't claim to know him and not honor his word in every aspect of your life. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Paul says the same thing. For he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That's why when you read Matthew 25, that final section of Matthew 25, where Christ gives us this amazing preview of the final judgment. And there he emphasizes in that passage that in the end, the fruits of our life are the ultimate defining evidence of who we are. That's why I said this morning, you cannot be united to Christ and not manifest that in your life. Because that that life-giving union to Christ cannot and shall not remain fruitless, impossible. That will manifest itself in a Christ-like life. The congregation, what's so sobering for me too, is that in that day, the only judgment that will matter is His judgment. The only opinion that will matter is his opinion. In the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think of you. It doesn't matter what your elders think of you. It doesn't matter what your family members think of you. In that day, only one opinion matters, and that's Christ's opinion. And he will make no mistake, congregation. He will make no mistake. His judgment will be flawless. He will know with precision those that are his and those that are not his. So we read in Matthew 25, verse 32 and 33. And before him, before him, Emmanuel, the Son of God, before him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them. He will do it. He shall separate them one from another as his shepherd divided his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Oh, what an amazing moment that shall be. There will be many who will be stunned that he will place them among the goats. There will be many who have been engaged in all kinds of stuff, who have prophesied in his name. It's going to include ministers, elders, deacons, Christian school teachers, seminary professors who have prophesied in his name, who've done wonderful works in his name, who've cast out devils in his name, have all done it in his name, and he will say to them, I never knew you. That means Christ in the end is not impressed by our religious activism What matters to him is whether we obey his word, whether we honor his word in every aspect of our lives. That's what matters to him. And that will be the criterion by which we will be judged. 
That's why this is so solemn. This is solemn for me. I include myself in all of this. As I said before, I need to examine myself as much as you do. Because it will not help me in that day that I've even stood before you today. Then he speaks about them being cast into the fire. People sometimes ask me, Pastor, is, will there be a physical fire in hell? And I believe that the fire that the Bible speaks of is symbolic. But let me, let me quickly tell you that the fire of God's wrath will be worse than a physical fire. The fire of God's wrath. We have no idea what that means to face the wrath of Almighty God. That wrath is as infinite as all of God's attributes. As a matter of fact, the wrath of God itself is not one of God's attributes. Had there been no sin, there would have never been any wrath. But what is the wrath of God? It is the response of His entire being. It's the response of all of His attributes towards sin. And God's being is such that He can only respond to sin in one way, and that's in wrath. And that's why the cross of Calvary gives us a window into how God responds to sin. There hung His only begotten Son, the Son of His good pleasure. But there He hung as the mediator of His people. And He became the object of His Father's wrath. His Father poured out the vials of His wrath upon the head of His only begotten Son. And the intensity was unspeakable. That's why he sweat drops of blood already in the garden when he felt that fire burning in his holy soul. That's why he cried out in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ endured hell in the place of his people. So the cross gives us a window into how God responds to sin, how Christ ultimately responds to sin. Because we have to realize that nominal Christians are so very offensive to Him. Nominal Christians who claim His name, who claim to know Him, and whose life contradicts it. Second, Second Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 9. Again, open your Bibles, please, and read this solemn passage with me. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9. There we read, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now you have the angels again. In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. And then this damning phrase, congregation, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, true believers not only believe that gospel, but they obey it. Their faith is verified by obedience. Those two belong inseparably together in God's word. 
believers in Christ are always followers in Christ. Those who are connected to the living word honor his written word. It says he will take vengeance on them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What a day that will be. We read of it in Revelation 20. That heaven and earth will seek to flee from him and they will not be able to. But he comes in glory and in majesty and in power. How the world will then tremble. We have no idea what that will be to the ungodly. When they behold the unspeakable glory of the Son of Man when he comes to be the judge of all the earth. Heaven and earth will seek to flee from him, but will not be able to. That's why the passage in Revelation 6, again, open your Bibles to Revelation 6, verse 15 through 17. It's it's such a stunning passage. Revelation 6, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. And listen to this. And from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb that's a reference to Christ as Savior. Who will then be the judge. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? You know what's striking about that passage? talks about all the important people in this world all the power brokers of this world the mighty men the chief captains the rich men the great men the vast majority of them will face this they had their moment of glory in this life in this life men adored them and worshipped them and their death is broadcast over the news, worldwide. But this is what they face. But congregation, this is what we will face as well if we are not in Christ. Oh, the indescribable future of fruitless branches. Because in, in a, some sense, that judgment will even be greater. Because the fruitless branches have enjoyed all the benefits of God's church, have been under the preaching of the word, have been connected to the church in an outward way, and yet to die as a fruitless branch. To have lived under the gospel, to have heard of Christ, to have professed his name, but never to have honored him, to have honored him by our life. Oh, to face him. What shall that be? No wonder that Jesus speaks of hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, hell. Hell is real congregation. 
And I would be utterly unfaithful. We as God's servants would be un- are unfaithful if we do not speak about the reality of hell. It is God's will that we address that reality, that we preach that reality, that we proclaim to our people, that's your future apart from Christ. That's why we need to know that it is well with our soul. We need to know Not only by verses 4 and 5 of the chapter I read to you, John 15. And there we read God's word and our text. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abides. Whether I'm a true believer. Well, who are they? Those that are poor in spirit. Who realize their spiritual bankruptcy. Those who mourn, who grieve over their sinnership, who grieve over having offended God. Those that are meek, who humble themselves before God, who take their proper place before God. And with that disposition, hunger and thirst after Christ and His righteousness. You see, what Christ is teaching us there, that true faith in Him does not operate in a vacuum. Those who hunger and thirst after him know why they hunger and thirst after him. They are poor in spirit. They grieve over sin. They have seen themselves the way God sees them. And that makes them realize that their only hope is in Christ outside of themselves. There are so many Christians today who claim to be Christians who are absolutely clueless when it comes to that. We may have dealt in the past with those who thought that the deeper your conviction of sin was, the better it was with you. And that is a Christless conviction, conviction that does not end in Christ. That's that's not the real thing. But the opposite is also true. A convictionless Christianity. Those who have claimed to have come to Christ, but who don't have a clue why they need precisely this Christ. And what Christ is saying in those opening verses, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they know why they hunger and thirst after righteousness. They know why they need such a Christ. Precisely because they are poor in spirit. And they mourn. And they are meek. And they have taken their proper place before God. That's what makes Christ so precious. Because we realize, I am bankrupt, void of all righteousness. My only hope lies in that Christ and in this finished work. And those that hunger and thirst after righteousness and who are filled, they will be merciful, compassionate. They will be pure in heart. There you have it. Pure in heart. You see what Christ is saying, the purity of life of the Christian flows out of a pure heart. It comes from within and will manifest itself. And they will be peacemakers. That's the picture. The citizens of God's kingdom. Oh, hell. It is a very uncomfortable subject. A place of perfect, never-ending justice. And listen carefully to what I say. There are no unbelievers in hell. And I'll, t- I'll explain to you what I mean. There's not a single person in hell that does not believe in God. They they all know it. Those that are there, they all know it. 
And in that final day, the word of God says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For many, it will be the first time. And congregation, if that's the first time, it's too late. It's too late. That's the awful thing about hell. You will never be able to escape the truth any longer. Hell is filled with people who acknowledge the truth too late. Too late. And hell is a place. Sometimes it's been said, and I think it's incorrect. Hell is a place where God is absent. It's not true. He will be present, but in his wrath. There's nothing worse imaginable for a human being than to be subject forever to the wrath of his maker. And that's so consistent with his being. You say, how can a God of love be a God of wrath? Precisely because he is a God of love. Because he loves his son. He loves his son so much that the only appropriate response to the unbelieving rejection of his son is his wrath. It's like the wrath of a father towards a man who abuses his daughter. That wrath is real. That wrath is defined by his love. And so it is with the wrath of God. Let's not forget, everything we know about hell, we know from the mouth of Christ. The Savior spoke more of hell than he spoke of heaven. Because he realized that most people don't realize what it means. And he had this burden. He came to seek and to say that which is lost. And he wanted to confront the people in his day with the reality that awaits all those that reject him in unbelief. That's ultimately what a fruitless branch is. Because even though they claim to be believers, in the end they are not believers. They are unbelievers. Because their life condemns them. So congregation. It's not easy for us to preach a message like this. But we must. We are called to make ourselves free from the blood of all men. And so I want you to examine yourself prayerfully in the presence of God. David didn't trust his own judgment. He said, Lord, search me, O God. Search me. Search me and see if there be any wicked way within me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Years ago, an old, experienced elder once said to me, it's been the experience of my lifetime that deceived people rarely are undeceived. Deceived people rarely are undeceived. God forbid that that would be true of you and me. God forbid that I or you would have to hear out of the mouth of Christ. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. And so examine yourself, search your own soul, and come to this Christ. Come to him. If you've never come to him, come to him today. 
who is the willing and able Savior of sinners, come to him and surrender at his blessed feet. Kiss the Son, lest his Father be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And if your profession has been nothing but a lip profession, not corroborated with a Christ-like life, oh, then you need to surrender to him now. You need to cry out to this Christ that by his grace, he will not only save you, but renew you and make you a willing follower of him. Because that will prove that our relationship with him is genuine. Oh, may God give us the grace to be honest with our souls. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious, all-knowing, all-seeing, heart-searching God. We know that thou knowest our hearts and the secrets within. That thou knowest the true spiritual state of our souls. And, oh Lord, we pray that none of us would be self-deceived. That none of us would travel onward thinking they will enter. And once will be denied entrance. O Lord, we pray, therefore, for thy continued saving work within us, that by grace our life would indicate that we are truly united to Christ by a true and living, saving, transforming faith. Forgive our sins of this day and of this hour, sins in speaking and in hearing, And Lord, let thy word bear fruit. And oh, we pray that for all of us, when that day comes, we would hear out of the mouth of Christ, come, ye blessed of the Father, and enter into the kingdom that has been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Go with us as we go homeward. Keep us safely. Enter with us into the coming week. Bless the labor of our hands. Bless our children in school. Bless their education. Remember us as parents in the great task of training our children. As we've been reminded again how unexpectedly even they can be taken from us. Hear us for Christ's sake alone. Amen.